The following podcast is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. What would your life be like if just one event from your past changed? Have you ever thought about it? What if you didn't take that job or date that person or buy that house or car or whatever? I thought about it. I mean, if I never joined the Air Force, I wouldn't have my kids, at least not the ones I have now. I definitely wouldn't be, uh, you know, where I am today, not by a long shot. Where would I be? Or with who? Or uh, would I be alone, maybe? And what the fuck would I be doing? Would I have done anything remotely similar to my life now? Jesus, what a mindfuck. Now imagine one changed event that affected the entire world. This episode is a mental exercise in the power of chance, the fragility of history, and the fluidity of our understanding and interpretation of our own history and ourselves, and why things might have turned out for the best by just being the way they are. You know, or not. Who knows? Buckle up. It's going to be a, I didn't realize how much of my life was dependent on dumb fucking luck kind of trip today. Countdown for blast off. X minus five, four, three, two, X minus one, fire. Welcome to Elton Reads Book Week, the podcast that didn't make it into the top ten list of best podcasts in my head. That's all too real, and frankly, kind of sad. Now, if you enjoy this episode, please give the five-star rating and review. It helps, or so I hear. You want to contribute and uh, help make this podcast extravaganza more? Extravaganza? Hit up the uh, Patreon link in the description or it's anchor.fm page to do all that. And feel free to email me at eltonreadsbookaweek at gmail.com with any suggestions, questions, and a shout-out. That's a thing too, right? Or hell, maybe you just want to vent. I'm here. You know, you can do that too. You can do that through social media too. Uh, I'll hear you. Now, submit it for your approval. A world much the same as our own with only one difference. Well, uh, well, in the case of this book, it's a changed military, uh, historical military event that is the crucial aspect that's been altered by, by changing its outcome. You know, everything after it changes and and is replaced <clears throat> by something diabolical, insane, and handcrafted by military historians. In the tw- in in, uh, in the Elton reads a book a week uh, zone. I I tried really hard to make the Twilight Zone thing work. I really did. My name is Elton, and I read a book a week. The book this time around is What If, and it includes the subtitle The World's Foremost Military Historians Imagine What Might Have Been. If they had just, you know, left the title on the book without that, it would have been incredibly confusing, leaving one of the most face-punchable questions ever leveled at another human being alone on the cover. That that probably would have got a lot of booksellers and librarians hurt. Hey, man, uh, can I ask you a question? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, How can I help you today? This book, it's called What If? That's that's correct. Yeah, it's right there on the cover. Yeah, yeah. No, I see that. But, but, but I mean, what if? Uh, what if what? I, I don't understand. That's it? What if? 
what's it? The, the book. What if the book? What what if the book what? I'm afraid I don't understand. No, the, the book is what if? Uh, correct. But but what if what? What if what? Uh, me, meaning what if what was a book? Is, is that what you? So what you're asking, I, I I mean, I'd have to check. I, I think that might be a little too vague, though. I've never heard of it. What? Yes, I'm not familiar with it. Not familiar with what? That's what I said, sir. I, I don't know what. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what I'm asking anymore. I, I just, I just want to you know, hit you right now and make, and make all of this stop. I found this book in Walden Bookstore right before the world decided literacy didn't deserve a brick-and-mortar presence anymore. It was located in a mall that has since been torn down in favor of a Bed Bath & Beyond distribution center. That was thanks to people deciding they didn't want to visit stores anymore and would rather have things they bought stolen off their porches. You know, thank you, Amazon, and your sweet, money-losing shipping strategy. Which, by the way, is my brilliant segue into today's sponsor, Amazon who would like to remind you that Prime Day is a great time to buy something you'd want a porch pirate to steal, then resell on Facebook markets or eBay. Watches are especially popular as they add a touch of classy flair to almost any outfit, are expensive, and easily snatched and carried while running away. Why not give the gift of a little less back and leg pain to the thieves carting off your stuff? This Prime Day, why not give the gift of time? Thank you, Amazon, for your fake sponsorship. And for me, uh, you know, for ruining my chances of ever getting sponsored by them in the future. El, shooting himself in the foot since 2017. Moving on. This book's cover spoke to me in a way that I felt like I was being told something in code. And it was uh, one of the extremely rare times I was kind of right. There it was, screaming, what if, from the bookshelf. And I thought, what if... Unfortunately, I can, uh, you know, I completely ignored the subtitle and found a clerk and initiated the uh, conversation I told you about earlier. I then picked up an assault charge and fingers crossed my probation ends next year and I don't see any more altercations coming, you know, with confusing salespeople that might possibly extend it. Next year can't get here soon enough. No more ankle monitors. I mean, man, does it chafe. Ah, you know, no, that didn't happen. No. What I thought was, I bet it's about alternative history stuff. And it was, sort of. But I'll take the win. What's alternative history, you ask? At its crux, it's a subgenre of science fiction that creates a fictional world that is the result of a change in an action or event in the past that causes history to diverge from its known course. To be considered an alternate history story or written piece thing, you know, Certain criteria must be satisfied. Specifically, specifically, three things. One, a point of divergence from the historical record. Before the time in which the author is writing, this addresses the whole, quote, history, unquote, part of the alternative history style. You can't exactly talk about history if the history you're talking about is in the present. You know, because history is the present's past. Keep up, people. Two. A change happens that would alter known history. That nails down the alternative portion of the genre. You getting it now? Of course you are. Yeah, you're the smart one. This this explanation isn't for you. 
It's for the other person. No. No, not you. No. You. No. No. I don't. No. Him. No. No. Not. Not, not him. No. No. Right. Yeah. Yep. You. You. You look confused, dickhead. I'm doing this for you. <sighs> Some people's kids. Am I right? Three. An examination of the ramifications of that alternation to history. See, because you have to be able to compare the two in some way to see the differences. Otherwise, you're just making shit up, which, you know, you didn't need to change a historical event to do. You could just say, um, racist people that enslave uh, other people run the world. Instead of having to say, you know, the South win the Civil War instead of the North. You see what I'm saying? Oh, um, spoiler alert, the South lost the Civil War. You know, for those who haven't reached that point in history class or, or spent your formative years being schooled in barley hops and bong resin instead of, you know, American history, they lost. Uh, or maybe you're one of the fine people living in Leinster, Ireland, where 91% of the Irish listeners of this podcast reside. Leinster, by the way, is not a town in Ireland, but a province situated in the southeast of Ireland. The biggest place in Leinster is probably Dublin. I've heard of it. The province comprises the ancient kingdom of Meath. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Leinster. And oh my God, what the fuck is this word? Ostrich. Tell me if I got that right. I probably didn't. Which I'm sure everyone in that entire area is tired of hearing about how old and interesting shit is. I mean, they've probably heard it many, many, many times over hundreds of generations. I mean, okay, not to whip up a derogatory stereotype, but that's probably why the Irish drink. Hell, it's probably why most of Europe likes to drink, too. Just being told about and hearing how fucking old, yet cool, everything is. It can probably wear on a person. Probably does. I'd drink, too, if I had to hear about some fucking Saxon battle that took place where my toilet is for the millionth time. Some tourist is going on and on about Celtic druids worshipping God knows what in the marshes near who the fuck cares. No wonder there's so many drinking songs. You want to drown out all that fucking yammering. In a related theory, maybe heroin and opiates and that shit are a big deal in the Middle East because their shit is even older. After thousands of years and everything being biblical, I mean, beer, wine, and liquor just doesn't cut it anymore. You have to move on to some harder shit. Excuse me, isn't this where Arab uh, Muslims had begun to move towards the east of Persia and in 652 AD capturing the, the city of Herat? Fucking yes. For fuck's sake. Yes. Yes. They moved through this area. <laughs> Fucking God damn it can't take this shit anymore. I'm going to do some heroin. I love Irish folks. My wife is of Irish lineage, and she's amazing. Drinks like a fish, though. Breaks things when we mention rehab. I'm kidding. You're great, Ireland. And especially the Leinster area. I see you. Now, back to alternative history. The earliest example of which is believed to be found in Livy's Ab urbe condita libri, which, when translated, of course, means books from the founding of the city, which sounds like a pretty detailed history of the color beige. It's actually way cooler than that. Written in Latin between 27 and 9 BC by the historian Titus Livius, or Livy, as he uh, as he's usually referred to in gangster ass English, 
The work uh, covers the period of the legends concerning the arrival of Ananias. A. E N E A S and then anyway and the refugees from the fall of Troy to the city's founding in 753 the city being Rome of course <laughs> and the expulsion of the kings in 509 and down to Livy's own time during the reign of the emperor Augustus the last event covered by Livy is the death of Drusus in 9 BC. Unfortunately, most of the books written by Livy regarding the early history of Rome are lost to history. 35 of 142 books, about about 25% of the work, are still in existence. The surviving books deal with the events down to 293 BC. That's books 1 through 10. And from 219 to 166 BC, books uh, 21 through 45, a complete set would be considered one of the holy grails of historical finds. So, you know, check your attic and uh, look for dusty-ass covers of uh, books or look for piles of books, 142 of them. You find 142 books and they say, uh, Abbe, Ab, Herbe, Condita Libri. <laughs> you probably have a shit ton of money on your hands. Anyway. Livy contemplated an alternative 4th century BC that had Alexander the Great survived to attack Europe as he had planned. You know, what would have been the results for Rome if she had been engaged in a war with Alexander? Or, you know, what would the differences have been? His conclusion? The Romans would have curb-stomped Alexander, pissing on his corpse out of spite and used it for target practice to build the confidence of their mentally disabled soldiers. Hey, they're just as capable and handy in a fight. And there's some good team spirit happening there when they succeed. Sometimes they need a little more practice and confidence than everybody else. Sure. And there's nothing wrong with that. And what kind of practice builds confidence to? Huh? Well, there's nothing like heaving swords and shit at a non-moving, strung-up, dead Macedonian king. Is there? I mean, come on. Can you say... That mentally disabled guys whacking at a corpse of one of history's greatest leaders wouldn't bolster a little confidence? I mean, come on. A group of guys clumsily stoving in the head of a fetid Alexander the Great wouldn't put a smile on their face? And let's face it, your face too? It's, it's just cute to imagine. Am I right? What the fuck is wrong with me? I've lost the plot uh, temporarily. I'll be talking about Alexander the Great, by the way, again in a little bit. As he's uh, relevant to this book, you know, this book too. So, so is that foreshadowing? Maybe. I'll say yes. Moving on. One of the earliest works of alternative history published for a large audience may be Louis Joffrey's Histi oh my God. History de la Monarchie Universale. Napoleon et la Conquête du Monde. Uh, from 1812 to 1832. Uh, translated, that means History of the Universal Monarchy, Napoleon and the Conquest of the World. <laughs> so there you go. Which imagines Napoleon's first French empire emerging victorious in the French invasion of Russia in 1812 and in an invasion of England in 1814, later unifying the world under Bonaparte's rule. In the English language, the first known complete alternative history is Nathaniel Hawthorne's short story, P's Correspondence, published in 1845. It recounts the tale of a man who is considered a madman due to his perceptions of a different 1845. A reality in which long-dead famous people such as the poets Robert Burns, Lord Byron, Percy Bysshe, Shelley, Percy Shelley, anyway, 
and John Keats. The actor Edmund Keane and British politician George Canning and Napoleon Bonaparte are still alive. Employing things like time travel to create divergences like in William Tenn's short story Brooklyn Project, written in 1948. It's a story in which a tyrannical U.S. government ignores the warnings of a bunch of scientists about the dangers of time travel, pushing on with a planned experiment with the result that very minor changes to the prehistoric past cause humanity to never exist. Then there are stories that explore different timelines and alternative outcomes of historical events. And some use the quantum theory of the many world series <laughs> in things like H.B. Piper's Lord Calvan of Otherwen. A Pennsylvania state police officer who knows how to make gunpowder is transported from our world to an alternative universe where the recipe for gunpowder is a tightly held secret and saves a country that is about to be conquered by its neighbors. The book Timeline by Michael Crichton also comes to mind. It tells the story of a group of history students who travel to 14th century France to rescue their professor. <laughs> but it's in an alternate universe, so, I mean. And, <laughs> and an even earlier example is, uh, here's a throwback. Herodotus was an ancient historian who scribbled down a mix of fact and exaggerated claims. Read fiction. And called them histories. He's 50-50 on reliability, I think. But when there were so few people writing things down back then, you, you work with what you get, you know. Anyway, now, now, I've hit on, uh, you know, what alternative history stuff is a little bit. Um, I should tell you that uh, this book's not quite <laughs> that. So, uh, didn't see that coming, did you? Me either. I thought for sure it was, all the way up until I learned uh, it only kind of was. Which is uh, to say that when researching these books, wonderful listeners, I always end up uh, both learning something I didn't know before and finding a, a, another gaping hole in my already limited knowledge of the universe. I grow and self-flagellate for your infotainment. That's dedication, folks. Now, back to your regularly scheduled growth whipping. So, the book is partly alternative history, but it's probably more accurately a counterfactual history book. Counterfactual history explores history and historical incidents by extrapolating a timeline in which key historical events either did not occur or had an outcome different from the actual historical outcome. What the fuck does that mean, Elton? Speak English already! Slow down! All right. Easy now. A counterfactual history is laid out in a causal form, meaning something happens that causes something else to happen, and so on, and so on. So, like, if X had not occurred, Y would not have occurred. You know, like that. For example, say, if um, you hadn't been running with scissors, you wouldn't have cut off your dick. Yes. Yes, that's a weird example. Sure. Yeah. Okay. I'll take that. And if you're, you know, if you're of the womanly persuasion, please feel free to substitute tits, uh, I guess, in place of dick at your convenience. You know, sure. Now, why did I make this about you taking uh, haphazard chances with your sensitive bits? Well, you know, maybe I'm trying to include you, okay? You know, we're in this together now. Go with it. So event Y is that you ran with those fucking scissors, and that causes X, you know, chopping off your dick slash tit, and, uh, you know, the possible lifelong ridicule that goes along with that. I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't ridicule you, but, you know, I don't know who you hang out with. They might all be assholes. I don't, who knows? Got it? Get it? Hope so. 
Because I don't think, you know, running with scissors, falling and lopping off precious anatomy is the way to learn things. Do you? Uh, you know, glad we had this talk. And hey, even if the physicality of the exercise would help you learn, maybe you're a, your hand, maybe you're a hands-on type of learner. I don't know. You know, just don't. Don't. Okay? Be partial to your penis and titties. All right? You've been together a long time. And they've gotten you through a, through a lot of boredom, if you catch my drift. If you didn't catch my drift, I meant playing with yourself. Now, as far as counterfactual history goes, it's kind of a, an umbrella term genre thing. Beneath its nylon or possibly plastic dome, I imagine it to be painted with all manner of historical frescoes and uh, is the subgenre of alternative history, which we've discussed. Oh, and something called speculative fiction, which uh, which we haven't. That's because it has nothing to do with this book. Well, other than this book maybe providing inspiration for speculative uh, fiction. This book deals with actual historical events. Nothing beyond the alternative premise, which is, too, based on historical record, for the most part. Meaning they don't make up any players or introduce a madman in a box that is reincarnated every time there's a contract dispute. No, instead, this book consists of essays written by military historians based on a question posed to them by another historian named Robert Cowley. Apparently, it's uh, historians, uh, it's their favorite question. Their favorite secret question. The question of what if. Why is it their favorite question? Why do you ask someone, what the fuck is wrong? Just leave them alone. Because they're terrible people who like annoying questions that elicit the worst violent urges and get book peddlers punched is why one more year, Elton. You can make it. Um, no, it's because that very question can be a tool, okay, to enhance the understanding of history, to make it come alive. As it says in the book, history is properly the literature. The literature. Why can't I say words? History is properly the literature of what did happen. But that should not diminish the importance of the counterfactual. Asking questions of the long-held assumptions leads to a better understanding of ourselves on the whole. The true outcomes of last-minute, split-second decisions are thrown into sharp relief when butted up against the thought exercise of considering the counterfactual. Plus, it lets you use the term butted, and who doesn't like butt stuff? Most of that was a quote from the book. Counterfactual history seems a more accurate fit for what this book is. You know, what if... Um, being that it's written by a group of historians at the behest of a historian, you know, and they like to stick to actual events and only speculate based on real-world evidence, it's a great method of intellectual inquiry. Keeps them sharp. An earlier example of a book similar to What If, and one of the most famous of its kind, is If, or History Rewritten, compiled and published in 1931 by Sir John Collings Squire, a fun-loving English author, poet, critic, historian, and influential literary editor of the post-World War I period. Among those who contributed to his volume was none other than Winston Tadbit Tipsy Churchill. <laughs> I've heard of him. He considered what might have happened if Robert E. Lee had prevailed at Gettysburg. Um, he figured he would have gone on to capture Washington and much of the North. 
Another contributor, H.A.L. Fisher, guessed that if Napoleon had escaped to America after his defeat at Waterloo, he would have been lionized as a champion of liberty, favored with the affections of a Polish beauty, and encouraged to invade South America. That bit is from a New York Times article, by the way. See? It's creativity in a field that can sometimes feel like there's not really a lot of space for creativity. Fully being creative with it is where, quote, alternative history comes into play. Quote, counterfactual history, unquote, is more academic, but is very easily seen as the foundation from which alternative history has its lineage. I wanted to cover the scope of alternative and counterfactual history to show the creative breadth of the intellectual depth of the subject matter we're fucking with in this book. Because once you postulate a different outcome, that's where the creativity really begins. That's where you get books like The Guns of the South, which is an alternative history book, uh, which is an alternative history novel set during, during the American Civil War. It's more or less, uh, if the guns had a few machine guns, would it have won the Civil War? Um, spoiler, fucking yes. I just wanted to give uh, some background on how fun this shit is. Uh, to think about and read, loosely related to the counterfactual, loosely related to the counterfactual um, content of this book is the idea of the butterfly effect. What the fuck is that? Besides a terrible movie starring Ashton Kutcher, which made a surprising amount of money, uh, I don't know. Maybe it's just me. I thought it kind of sucked, but. You know, I've always been a terrible movie critic and critic in general. I think, anyway. The butterfly effect, should you not be aware, is the sensitive dependence on initial conditions in which a small change in one state of a deterministic nonlinear system can result in large differences in a later state. In the case of the book What If, it's the change in the significant military event imagined by the historians and the effects of what happens afterwards. After introducing the change, they go on to imagine the real-world implications of that change using real-world data and the likelihoods of the people involved, you know, and, and the other stuff that's involved, too. Imagine, if you will, dominoes set end-on-end, end, one after another, one by one, and doing that for hours. Then, when the last domino is set, flicking the first one, while the person putting down all the dominoes screams, No, not yet! I was going to record that, you asshole! And then you just laugh. And laugh while they throw shit at you with murder in their eyes. <laughs> Good times. Now, well, those dominoes and them bumping into each other uh, is a rough example of the butterfly effect. Actually, it probably more accurately would be a smaller, you know, small domino knocking into a slightly bigger one, which knocks into a slightly bigger one, slightly bigger, slightly bigger, slightly bigger, as they scale up. So who the fuck is this Robert Cowley fuck? He said in a hard left-turn segue that is not brought to you by Amazon. He is an American military historian who writes about American and European military history from the American Civil War through World War II. He has also held several senior positions in book and magazine publishing and is the founding editor of the award-winning MHQ, the quarterly journal 
of military history. Plus, he's written extensively all by himself, and he's friends with a shitload of historians, whom he asked to contribute to three collections of essays in counterfactual history known as... Drumroll? No, drumroll. Okay. What if... The book, you know, the what, which is, that's the book I'm talking about today. Actually, uh, just, uh, I just bought the book, The Collected What If, which, um, which has both the first book, What If, and What If 2, The What If Ring. Okay, that's not the title, but you get it. I actually uh, bought What If uh, alone, and then I actually I have that too. As part of his research, Mr. Cowley has traveled the entire length of the Western Front, from the North Sea to the Swiss border. That is all from Wikipedia, I, most of it anyway, because, because fucking authors and now historians hide their pasts like the Vatican adumbrates diddly priests. Oh, God damn it. What is wrong with me? I'm sorry. I'm, uh, I'm sorry if I offended anyone with that. I, I know it's a touchy subject. Oh, that made it worse. Sorry again. Sorry. Moving on. You have interesting lives, authors. Share a little. We're not asking for the farm out here, but at least let us know what kind of crops you're growing from time to time. God damn it. So, on to the bookie book. I don't know why I said it like that. What If is composed of essays written by military historians, most of which were contributed to MHQ for their 10th anniversary issue. All the historians were asked to pick their favorite event to be changed and expound on that change's consequences. The historians describe what they believe to be the likely outcome after the change. It's fucking brilliant. I'm not kidding. Truly, it's it's not a highly technical read, but damn if it's if it isn't fascinating. I've picked um, a few of my favorites out of the book to talk about. So let's get into it. Oh, but uh, yeah. Also, if you have the book or, or plan on, you should definitely get the book. It's great. Uh, the book goes in chronological order because, you know, fucking historians, you know. Um, I myself am, uh, you know, not a fucking historian. So I'm bucking that shit. So let's roll the dice and, uh, you know, pick one. Here we go. Imagine you're ima- a lot of imagining happening here. I'm sorry, but imagine you're an observer on the walls. Of Vienna. It's a clear day, and in the distance you see a few odd and ominous riders on little horses, you know, running around out there. And they utterly fucking terrify you. Why? Because they're on horses, and you hate horses. You think to yourself, what are they, horses? They're like giant mutant dogs with distorted nightmare faces that can stomp you to death with their hard toe feet. Would they eat you if they had the chance? I mean, do they do they eat people? Probably. You're not sure, but probably, you know. Sure, they look like they can only eat hay and apples, but come on, vegetarians are skinny and small. These things are huge. Big enough for a person to fit inside. You're on to them, okay? Nothing with soulless eyes like they have uh, can be trusted. You're pretty sure they've just been eyeing up humanity and sizing us up. And soon, it's dinner time. The horses are lying. Um, no. You're scared because of the men on the horses. They're Mongol scouts. As a super well-informed wall observer person, you also know that they're 
camped a few hundred miles away down the, down the Danube River. There's an entire Mongol army there, and those scouts are with them. What horrifies you is the knowledge that Mongols are known for absolutely annihilating everything in their path. And so far, no army has been able to stop them or even slow them down. They had rampaged across an entire continent, ripped across Hungary, and now they're at your front door. Why? Why were they so unstoppable? Because they operated like a modern army set down in a medieval world. Their strengths were speed, maneuverability, firepower, incredible discipline, and a superb officer corps. There was an emphasis on merit, which influenced succession in their ranks. If you did your job well, you were rewarded with a higher rank. This went against a lot of military structure at the time that rewarded rank based on birth. You know, royalty and the aristocracy and shit like that. You had to know your shit to rise in rank in the Mongol military. So it incentivized soldiers to do well. Anyone could become a general if you did well enough. As opposed to the, you know, incentive of uh, the luck of being shot out of the right vagina and what that gets you. How did it come to this? This terrifying army at the walls of Vienna. Genghis fucking Khan, of course, and his son. The great Khan of the Mongols was born along the banks of the Onan River sometime around 1162 and originally named Temujin, which means of iron or blacksmith. While Khan is a traditional title meaning leader or ruler, historians are still unsure of the origins of Genghis. Some believe it to be a rough translation of ocean or big, while other folks believe it to mean universal. Regardless, it's somewhat clear that Genghis Khan means ruler of everything, everywhere, which, you know, might have been pretty fucking apt. Before I continue, by the way, I'm pronouncing his name the way I first heard it, which was in the movie Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. If you prefer Chingus or Genghis or who the fuck knows what, just imagine uh, I'm saying it that way and learn not to let things bother you so fucking much. Um, talk to Genghis Khan and uh, he's dead and doesn't give a shit. If this podcast, by some miracle, should be referred to in the coming years, and they call me Earlton or E. Elton or Elo, wink, or maybe just plain that fuckhole who uh, won't shut up and just talk about the books, I'll be fine with it. Because, hell, at least they're talking about me. You know what I'm saying? Speaking of which, give me a five-star rating and review so that it can be found uh, to be mispronounced later. Thanks. Genghis, <laughs> Genghis uh-huh. grew up hunting and foraging to survive. And as an adolescent, he may have even murdered his own half-brother in a dispute over food. Imagine being that hungry. Having a rough childhood, uh, Genghis spent time as a slave before making a daring escape into not being a slave. By his early 20s, after living a seeming lifetime in those short years, he had established himself as a formidable warrior and leader. And after amassing an army of supporters, uh, you know, he began forging alliances with the heads of important tribes, meaning uh, he slapped them around until they got in line. By 1206, he had successfully consolidated the Mongolian steppe confederations under his banner and began to turn his attention to outside conquest. Genghis Khan was exceptionally good at conquering. So good, he often gave other kingdoms a chance to peacefully submit to Mongol rule. 
you know, because his reputation preceded him. What this meant was sometimes, emphasis on sometimes, he would give people two choices. A, surrender. Women and children become enslaved. The men murdered and they get scattered to the countryside. He takes your shit and burns your place to the ground. Or B, he straight up murders everyone, then takes your shit and burns your place to the ground. Either way, fucked. He didn't hesitate to bring down the sword on any society that resisted. It's impossible, actually, to know for sure how many people perished during the Mongol conquests. Many historians put the number at somewhere around 40 million people. All told, the Mongols' attacks may have reduced the entire world population by as much as 11%. In fact, Genghis Khan has been branded the greenest invader in history because he killed so many fucking people. He probably helped scrub 700 million tons of carbon from the atmosphere. That's right. So many people were fucking killed in his bloody invasions that huge swaths of cultivated land depopulated so fast and were returned to forest because they could not be repopulated fast enough. In the book, there are multiple allusions to this. One saying that he wanted to murder everyone in China to, you ready for this? Have more grazing land for his fucking horses. Do you hear what I'm saying? The fate of a very large number of people rested on somebody actually talking Genghis down from what he thought was a sensible approach to feeding his horses. Yellow Chukai, listen, I can understand your apprehension. I get it. It's going to be a lot of work killing men, women, and children. It always is. But you have to, you, you, you understand the horses are important. Genghis, I, I, uh, listen, I, of course, of course the horses are important. Don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. It's a great idea. Whoa. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's a great idea. But, but now hear me out. Okay. What, you know, what if we let them live? Oh, come on. The horses, man. Imagine how much grass we'd free up for the horses. Genghis, Genghis, look, I understand. Like I said, I understand. Listen, though, if we let the people, you know, live, if we let, now listen, huh? if we let the people live, you know, maybe we can tax them. Oh, my God, that's so boring. You know, you, come on, you've been, you know how much killing people, how much fun killing people is and burning stuff. It's great. It's so much fun. And. The grass for the horses. Genghis, I, I, look, I know. Gang, Genghis, look, I do. I do. I understand. I do. I do. I do. I do. But, but if we, but if we let them toil, you know, and produce for us, then, uh, then they pay taxes. And, the, and I know, I, I know, Genghis, I know, I know, I know, I, I do, I do, I do, I get it, I get it, I get it. But if we let them toil, you know, in the fields and they produce, you know, and they pay taxes, uh, you know, you know those, ta you know those taxes. What they can pay for, right? Yeah, God, fine. They can pay for horses. Taxes can pay for more horses. Yeah, yeah, that's right. They can. 
Yeah, what else can I pay for? Ah, God, okay. They can pay for the feed for the horses. Whatever, they can pay for one. Yeah, I get it. God. That's right. That's right. The taxes can pay for Yeah, they can. That's what taxes are for. Fine. Fine. Yeah, okay. okay. Yeah. But, but, if they whine, then they all die, and the horses will graze on the grasses their corpses fertilize. That, uh... That, uh, that sounds like a reasonable compromise, Genghis. Good God. It also talks about the Russian city of Kiev, or Kiev, K-I-E-V. I've heard it both ways. It talks about that city being, you know, a wealthy center of trade because of its positioning on a river. After the Mongols found it uh, and did their thing, later it was found to be little more than 100 people huddled around a fire in a blackened boneyard. They actually claim the famous Russian xenophobia is often attributed to their experiences at the hands of the Mongols. Yeah, imagine imagine the Mongols affecting a country so bad they hate outsiders for hundreds of years afterwards. By the way, the Mongols fucking hated cities. Burning them to the ground was, was they'd choose that, you know, rather than fucking deal with them. That's, that's insane. Despite Genghis Khan dying on August 25th, 1227, uh, either historically of a battle wound or was, I like this, castrated by a princess, which I think is hilarious. Genghis out there one night in some encampment trying to bone a princess from a kingdom he just conquered. One of the many, 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 many women he got it on with. Then suddenly there's a shrill shriek that pierces the quiet night. Guards rush into his tent and there's Genghis, dick in his hand, and not in a good way. The guards are like, Genghis, your dick is in your hand, man. Why isn't your dick on your body? My dick's been cut off. Okay, she cut my dick off, man. It's not, it's not where it should be, god damn it. Have you, have you tried putting it back? What? You, you know, just just try putting it back on. Maybe you can just pop. Maybe maybe it just pops back on. What the fuck are you talking about? It's been cut off, you fucking idiot. Well, don't get mad at me, Genghis. I never had my dick lopped off. I'm kind of new to the whole dick being separated from the body situation. Hey, may- maybe, maybe, okay, if you'd been nicer to the woman, you wouldn't be in this. Oh, okay, he passed out from blood loss. Genghis Khan's death has been the subject of scholarly debate for nearly 800 years. Fortunately, or unfortunately, depending on you know how you look at it, the death of Genghis Khan did little to stop the Mongols from invading and laying waste to those around him. Before his death, it was decided that his third son, Odegai, after having participated in the turbulent events of his father's rise, would succeed his father as a leader of the Mongol Empire. Why the third son? Because it was, uh, it was generally agreed that if his first or second son... Um, was named Khan Emperor of the Mongol Empire, there would have been a fucking civil war and splitting of the empire and all that. Uh, Wise won out over bloodlines, and the leveling of cities continued. Odegai carried on with the expanding of the empire that his father had begun. Which brings us all the way back to you and those Viennese walls. The Mongol scouts in the distance are foreshadowing of horrific city-burning days to come. They've arrived, and Europe will undoubtedly fall. They'll cut through Vienna and the countries beyond with relative ease. Infighting among those countries kept the armies 
that they were able to uh, amass at manageable sizes. And, uh, you know, they were headed by self-important royalty who never showed any inclination to unite to meet the threat posed by a huge army, let alone one of Mongolian status. Vienna might buy some time, though, by submitting at once. It wouldn't be much mercy. The Mongols didn't fuck around. They would let the city's inhabitants leave, and then it would be fucking plundered and leveled. Again, because that's what they were known to do, and they fucking hated cities. They would move on from there and roll through Belgium with little fucking resistance, and then into France, completely destroying Paris on the way. Possibly, you know, they'd send a detachment into northern Italy, where they would uh, find grass to feed their horses and more cities to plunder and level. The same thing happening again and again. Surrender and uh, be partially spared, fight, and be fucking annihilated completely. The Mongols would carry off anything they could lift and burn the fucking rest. The people they left behind would be in abject poverty, huddled in tiny villages, governors would be installed, and taxes levied. Killing off those cities would effectively erase the financial center of Europe. The first stock markets developed in Belgium and the society it helped develop would be ripped out by the fucking roots. With the cities depopulated and leveled, much of it would return to the sea or become marshland again. There would be no rise of capitalism or the middle class. The loss of Paris would probably be the most disastrous. It would become the center of the high Middle Ages. At the university, the intense study of Aristotelian logic, which was laying the groundwork for a fundamentally new worldview. A rector at the University of Paris would, a hundred years later, develop the first theory of inertia. On those ideas would stand the great theories of Galileo, Kepler, Newton, and more. The Mongols would take Rome and destroy European society's strongest link to its past. Without examples of classicism to inspire them, would Dante exist or Michelangelo or Leonardo? Even if their ancestors did survive the Mongol slaughter and the desolation of their cities and countrysides, they would be locked in a struggle to survive with little room left for poetry and art. You, of course, watching from the wall, wouldn't have known about anything that would happen after or could have happened after. You wouldn't have known anything more than what happened before. You would know that the Mongols would enslave you and level your entire world. And those scouts in the distance would soon bring an army. Then, then you watch as they turn and ride away. And you think, fucking great. Great. It's going to be what? A few days? A week? Two at the most? Everyone's going to die. There's nowhere to go. I don't want to die. <clears throat> Screaming I don't want to die is starting to develop into a theme on this podcast. Hmm. So, there you are, visiting the wall, you know, anxiously waiting out those days at the edge of panic. Waiting. Soon. Soon they'll be here and everyone's going to die. But the army never appears. The Mongols never destroyed Vienna. Why was it spared? Why would they abandon such an easy prize? The fucking law. That's why. Odegai, Genghis Khan's brilliant, humane, and drunkard third son, uh, the one who kept ascending, the one who ascended to the head of the Mongol Empire after his father's death, the one who not only kept the empire together but directed its expansion, died. Odegai died during a drinking bout. It was Mongol law 
that uh, when the Khan died, the chiefs were required to go back in person to their heartland to elect a new Khan. So, the society and modern world we've come to depend on, and a lot of the good that's come out of it, um, the science, the art, all of it exists because of the effects of alcoholism and, and lucky timing. It's fucking scary, right? He fucking dies. I'm, I imagine cirrhosis, you know, what fucking, he dies, fell on his fucking head, I don't know, died a drunk. They have to go back, and when they, when all the chiefs went back, there was so much infighting as to who the next Khan would be, no one ever got strong enough again to unite the Mongols to destroy anything. Alcoholism and lucky fucking timing. Isn't, oh my God, that's insane. Uh, hold my beer. No, I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. I don't have a beer. I wish I did. I don't. Um, okay. So it's 334 BC, roughly 1500 years before Genghis and his crew slapped the fucking world around and leveled cities. And uh, right now in 334 BC, uh, men are killing each other in Anatolia. Who would, you know, who would have thought people killing each other? It's not, that's, that's fucking new. I mean, uh, entertainment, right? You see what happens without an internet and uh, free porn? Yeah. Anyway, Anatolia was a country located in the northwestern part of modern day Turkey. It's the Battle of the Granicus River, the first military engagement for an invasion of the Persian Empire. The Macedonians and their Greek allies are throwing down against the local Anatolian cavalry and, and Greek mercenary infantry. They are under the command of some Persian regional governors or satraps. They are, uh, they're amassed in a defensive formation on the opposite side of the bank of the river, which was fordable or, you know, able to be crossed. But the banks are kind of steep. The Macedonian second lieutenants are counseling caution but Alexander the Great is having none of that shit. Alexander III of Macedon, or, you know, as he is known today, Alexander the Great. You know, but he hasn't earned the great part yet. He is in charge of this battle invasion shit. And being a fresh-faced, barely 22-year-old, he's here to fuck shit up and make the, quote, great happen, happen. He mounts his horse, Bucephalus. One of the most famous horses of antiquity. A horse with a big-ass head. The horse's name literally means ox head. Or, or you know, uh, he had a huge head. Or, uh, or you can go with the other story of him being named after a branding mark depicting an ox's head on his haunch. But come on, I'm going with the huge noggin. Because I like to think ancient Macedonians were into insulting animals with their naming. Oh, that floppy dick. He's a fast runner, he is. And even though he trips a lot... On account of, you know, his floppy penis. I bet he could be any steed in the stable. Should he, uh, you know, avoid walking on his own genitalia long enough? Right, right, well, right. Until he comes up against old tiny balls, sad crier. He's a good head taller than floppy. And is a lot less burdened by wandering flaccid sex organs. Plus, his balls are tiny, so he's faster. Them's physics. Don't know why I did it like that, but I did it like that. Alexander wearing some very visible headgear with white plumes on it splashes through the river to fuck up some Persians. Before he had met up with them, they had fallen back slightly, and he plunged deep into their ranks. 
He must have thought, holy shit, this is going to be so much easier than I thought. Which is exactly what the Persians wanted him to think. Due to how well he charged, due to how deep his charge went, Alexander was temporarily cut off from his army. Surrounded by the enemy, an axe-wielding Persian noble named Spithridates took down the Macedonian king with a heavy blow to the head, damaging his helmet. Alexander was on the ground, dazed and confused, which is a great Led Zeppelin song, by the way. So Alexander is about to get his head severely cut the fuck off by the axe over Spithrodi's head. and There's an axe above his head, and he's about to bring that shit down. In the next few seconds, the fate of the Persian Empire and Western civilization hangs in the balance. Born in 356 B.C., Alexander was born in Macedon. Macedon, yep. Which was located in the northeastern region of Greece. Greece, for people that aren't an idiot like myself. The first and only son of King Philip II of Macedon and Olympias of Epirus. That's, uh, that's modern-day Albania. Although Philip had taken control of Macedon just three years before Alexander's birth, he took it from a backwater border zone that was constantly being fucked with to, by the time Alexander was 10, the most powerful state on the Greek peninsula. Groomed to help govern the kingdom and eventually assumed a throne, Alexander was well-trained. His tutor was Aristotle, who, as we all know, when he wasn't tutoring and philosophizing, grew very large, very tall, and changed his name to Shaquille O'Neal and helped the LA Lakers and the Miami Heat win a few championships. hey that's a big Aristotle joke, because Shaq gave himself that nickname, and you get it. No, Aristotle was a Greek philosopher whose views profoundly shaped medieval scholarship and Western civilization as a whole. Before I go on, Western civilization, those words keep popping up. What is that exactly? Well, Western civilization refers to the art, literature, culture, and enduring ideas that emerged from the Eastern Mediterranean Basin in the centuries before the Common Era, which is another term for the Christian Era that developed in myriad forms through the Middle Ages and that ultimately took modern shape after the Renaissance. In essence, it's the heritage of social norms, ethical values, traditional customs, belief systems, political systems, artifacts, and technologies of the Western world. The Western world refers to various regions, nations, and states, depending on the context most often consisting of the majority of Europe, Northern America, and Australasia. Australasia. Lastly, what the fuck is an Australasia? Well, it is a region which comprises Australia, huh? Yeah, New Zealand, and some neighboring islands. It's also something I just learned in doing research for this podcast. Thank you. Curious brain and its ongoing search for information relevant to no one else but me. So, overall, if you live in those regions, Western civilization is the foundations of democracy, artistry, history, science, you know, how we develop technology. Basically, everything you've ever known about the modern world can be covered under the idea of Western civilization. How did Aristotle, the tutor of Alexander III of Macedon, have such a large impact on Western civilization? He made pioneering contributions to all fields of philosophy and science, 
He invented the field of formal logic and identified various scientific disciplines yep. while also exploring their relationships to each other. He contributed to many different disciplines of education, all of which served to lay the foundations for many everyday fields of knowledge. This made him one of the preeminent big brains of his time and was sought out by Philip II, uh, Alexander's daddy, who requested he tutor his son Alexander, you know, the great, tutored him, educated him for 10 years. This, by most accounts, led to Alexander, you know, not being a total fucking idiot when it came to a broad range of subjects. Was this tutelage part of what convinced people of his greatness to such an extent as to forego calling him Alexander of Macedon and instead just relabeling him great, as in Alexander the? It's hard to say. A conquering leader so amazing, people tossed out his last name and simply slapped the great in its place instead. That doesn't happen too often. So it must have been warranted, right? I mean, you can't just call yourself the great and awkwardly try to convince people to call you that. I mean, because sure, you being the ruler of everything and all that, they might feel obligated for a while, but you know, you have to die sometime. And if you haven't warranted the name you gave yourself by that point, the name is getting switched the fuck back, you know, or worse. Great. Great my ass. You were a dumb shit dickhead when you were alive. And that's what we're going with now. The world will know you as Alexander the tiny dick dickhead dumb shit. Sure, doesn't, sure, sure. It doesn't roll off the tongue, but history will figure out a way to make it less wordy. And so it was from that day and forevermore that the history of Alex the tiny dicky dumb shit really began. But that didn't happen for old Alexander yet. No, sir. He still has to cross this river and whoop some Persian ass first. Yeah, you know, things aren't going so great for Alexander the Not-So-Great. Uh, he's surrounded by the enemy with only a small group of his soldiers around for protection. Then, in the heat of battle, tossed off of Bucephalus, the big-headed horse. He's about to be shuffled off this mortal coil the hard way. Spithridates, with his axe or sword, depending on the source, he swings it above his head and he brings it down hard on Alexander, separating his impatient head from his dead fucking body now, killing him instantly. And with him die the hopes of an entire expedition and the Macedonian imperial aspirations. Alexander's army would fight their way back home to, you know, fight amongst themselves to determine who their new ruler person would be. The Persians would do just fine, probably enter a long period of peace and prosperity. Their trade would expand, Greece and especially Athens would become a dominant military power, choosing not to push their ways onto those around them. They would probably focus on, you know, their role as an international port and trading center. Because Alexander never conquered the Persians, Hellenic architecture, decorated vases or vases, and literature faded away, never having caught on you know, in most of the West. There would probably be skirmishes for years, with the Romans eventually rising to power. Rome and Persia would go back and forth for a while, but eventually uh, a kind of equilibrium would settle. The world, after Alexander's early death, might be one of a fusion of Roman and Persian ideals, with a profound reverence for ritual, tradition, ancestors, and social hierarchy, you know, rather than Greek reverence for things like freedom, political equality, and the dignity of the person. And without the challenge of strong Greek cultural influence and the Romans' subsequent fuck-ups in Judea, 
Judaism would have remained a local phenomenon. And Persians were known for not giving much of a shit about local religious concerns. So with Persians ruling, get ready for this. There would have been no Maccabee uprising, no violent Roman destruction of the Second Temple, no great Jewish dysphoria. Just a small religious sect in a small area. Jesus of Nazareth, had he not stuck to the carpentry, uh, he would remain a local religious figure. There would never be a New Testament composed in Greek, a language Alexander's conquest developed into a kind of universal language of sorts. So it never would have gained a wide audience. And without the wide diffusion of Jewish and Christian texts, Muhammad would have grown up in a radically different world. It's likely that without it being like the classical Islam, the culture and military energies would have been worlds apart from how Islam is today, probably remaining overwhelmingly local as well. Holy shit. I mean, maybe saying holy shit wouldn't have had the same connotation or strength even. All of this is because at the last second, before the axe came down and possibly kickstarted the shit I just described, Alexander's bodyguard, Cletius, speared the fuck out of Spithrodates hmm, before he could seal the deal and cut off Alexander's head. It almost kind of makes you overlook Alexander, you know, <laughs> later coldly massacring hundreds of thousands of native peoples during his campaigns. And at times in Afghanistan and India, he and his army were wiping out entire tribes. You know, you kind of overlook that. Seriously, today, if Alexander was alive, he would be put on trial for war crimes. So, I mean, you know, Alexander's a great, maybe the Alexander not so great. I don't know. Mr. The Great would take over more territory than any general before him. Hell, it wasn't until the Mongols that an empire would surpass the size of the one he would build. So, mixed blessing, I guess. I mean, that he didn't catch an axe to the face. You know? I don't know. Moving on to something uh, a little more closer to home. Not super close, but it's 1889, and Annie Oakley is touring Europe on Buffalo Bill's Wild West show. She's amazing, the Berlin crowds with her trick shooting, while also owning and operating a vagina. Boom! Old-timey sexism joke achievement has been unlocked. It's come to the point in her act when she shoots the ashes from the tip of a lighted cigar, clenched between the teeth of a volunteer. She asks the audience, does anyone want to hold the cigar? Normally, this shtick involves an empty gesture of asking the audience, you know, for participation, who, of course, collectively think, what? A woman shoot the ash off a cigar is going to be in my mouth? Does she know she's without penis? Which is crucial to the accurate use of a firearm. Well, she may have impressed me with her shooting, despite her vaginal handicap. There's no way in tarnation I'm going to let her menstrual cycle blow my head off. No, sir. Or, you know, something like that. In my head, all old Western folks thought like this. Then, after she asks anybody who wants to do it, hold the cigar. Then her husband, Frank E. Butler, would raise his hand and step in to do the deed. By golly, someone stop that man. Does he know she's without testicles? He's going to get himself killed now. Sir, she has breasts and ovaries. Sir, it's only a matter of time before she kills somebody with that rifle. Okay, I'll stop now. Um, so her husband would put the lit cigar in his mouth, 
pace off a distance, and Annie would deftly shoot the shit out of the end of that shit every time because she was a true fucking badass. But not this time. Nope. When she asked for a volunteer from the crowd, someone in the crowd raised their hand. That volunteer was the impetuous young Kaiser Wilhelm II, who leaped to the stage and offered his mouth as the cigar holder. The crowd gasps, because if she misses, holy shit. First, let's talk about the players of this event. Annie Oakley was born Phoebe Ann Moses on August 13, 1860, the sixth of seven children in Dark County, Ohio, to Jacob Moses and Susan Wise Moses. Annie grew up a tomboy for the most part. While other girls, while other girls her age were inside learning to sew, young Annie Oakley was outside shooting at things. Or at least watching her dad shoot things. She liked playing in the woods, you know, and chasing down small woodland creatures and then, uh, you know, choking them because she liked to watch the life leave their eyes. Oh my God. What the fuck is wrong with her? Of course, that's not what she did. No, she just liked to do, you know, activities classically assigned to boys by society. So, you know, she was basically a lesbian. And as we all know, lesbian means gay, which we also know is an abomination before God who made us all but strictly and clearly defined ways. If you're a girl and you like sports, gay. God hates you. And if you don't enjoy playing with dolls and houses and they're, boom, gay. See you in hell. If you like hunting, fucking gay. Off to hell you go. Say hello to Satan for me for eternity. Is anyone else uh, buying my dumb shit nonsense? Because uh, that's fucking nonsense. How many listeners did I lose just now? Doesn't mean you're gay or straight or anything. Some folks just, you know, aren't into dolls and playing house and stuff. Why I decided to double punch with the sociopath uh, animal murderer bit right into the fake homophobia bullshit, I don't know. Call it artistic license or poetic, uh, you know, I made a choice, damn it, and it's too late to back out now. It means she was a kid who liked to do kid shit. One of them happened to be a love of, you know, hunting and shooting. Back in the day, it's what a lot of kids did. You know, it's even kind of true today in certain parts of the country and with certain people. However, back then, what uh, was thought a girl should do and act like was a lot more rigid. Her dad felt that girls should do girl stuff. So when uh, he hunted, she she could just watch. He would then, you know, after he was done, hang his Kentucky rifle high on the wall. And Annie would look at it, dreaming of the day that she could shoot small animals and watch the life. Okay, sorry. Luckily for Annie, that day came sooner rather than later when her dad died from the effects of being caught in a blizzard. Wishes can come true, kids. Just be careful what you wish for. Yeah, no, it was probably... Uh, Pretty sad, actually. After her father's untimely death, she did use the rifle and uh, learned to shoot it, and subsequently haunt the fuck out of everything in the forest around her house. Not for the love of, you know, murdering innocent creatures and a frenzied mania like my rotten brain is imagining in a bizarre comedic scene. Just a just a maniacally smiling eight-year-old girl running through the woods, cracking off shot after shot, while her horrified family looks on as the animal bodies drop. Annie, why, Annie, why? I have to have some kind of deficiency. I've started taking multivitamins. Annie used her father's rifle to stave off the starving side of poverty by hunting animals, you know, for sustenance. Eat them up. She kept that family fed. 
The story goes that she took down the rifle, rested the barrel on the porch railing, aimed, and gave a squirrel a nasty fucking headshot. She would later say it was the best shot she ever took, which is um, true, and uh, it's also kind of weird. But okay. As it would happen, and as history would show, Annie had a knack for shooting. And uh, her mother remarried. I think she had another kid. And uh, her second husband also died, leaving the family with a newborn baby. And because the family did not earn enough money, uh, Annie was sent to live with the Eddington family at the infirmary, where she learned how to sew and, and helped with the younger children. Then later, she lived with a family that treated her like a slave. No joke. That's real. That just goes to affirm another running theme of this podcast, apparently, that people can be fucking terrible to each other. What the fuck? So eventually, she learns to shoot better and better, and then uh, she enters She enters exhibitions. She becomes a professional. She gets recruited into Wild West shows because she's amazing at shooting things. Now, the man who may or may not catch a bullet to his noggin, Wilhelm II. A guy with a mustache that seemed to defy gravity. Seriously, it's a modern marvel in so many ways. How he didn't stab out his eyes rolling over in his sleep is a miracle that only God could make happen. Maybe that's why so many people died in World War I, because God was too busy keeping the Kaiser's mustache from murdering him. Maybe. Wilhelm was born on the 27th of January, 1859, in Berlin. He was the oldest child of... Crown Prince Frederick of Prussia and Victoria, daughter of Queen Victoria of the Victoria Victorias of Victoria United Kingdom. Sorry, I just wanted to emphasize that Victoria named her daughter Victoria. I mean, there were other names. I mean, Annie is another name. Tons of them existed back then. According to Sporacle.com, a quiz website, I think, uh, they say the most popular name was Elizabeth. And And that comes in second. A name which, as we all know, is currently a very queenly name. Perhaps, you know, a little Margaret action might have been all right. Some Queen Marge happening. Or Margie, even. Good old Queen Margie of the United Kingdom. She sounds like uh, she's a take-no-shit kind of queen because she full-on punches the fuck out of anyone daring to give her any. The Canadian representative says he's too ill to attend the state dinner. Fuck! I'm not telling Queen Margie, mate. Not doing it. No, the last time she punched me in the dick, and when I doubled over, she ordered me not to cry. All while continually punching me in the dick. Good God. Well, I'm just going to go into hiding, then. That Canadian bastard can fend for himself. Wilhelm's birth was a difficult one, leaving him with a withered arm, which he was always trying to conceal. In 1881, after a period of military service, Wilhelm married Augusta Victoria, fucking goddamn Victoria's, Princess of Schleswig-Holstein. And they had seven children, all named Victoria, even the boys. That's not accurate, but you get it. Wilhelm became the Kaiser of Germany at the age of 29 after his father ascended to the throne and died shortly after because people died very early back then. He gained a reputation as a swaggering militarist that was attracted to and impressed by the pomp of military heraldry. His theatrical posturing as Supreme Warlord only disguised his unpredictability and ineffectiveness as a war leader. Through his speeches and ill-advised newspaper interviews, he was often ridiculed and seen as dangerously stupid. The guy loved to say dumb shit, 
and really, really wanted to go to war and make that shit happen. While it's still a point of contention among historians as to how much of a part he played in starting or even instigating World War I into existence, it's pretty much agreed that he was an overly confident idiot in the wrong place at the right time. An example of his stupidity? A thing called the Daily Telegraph Affair. This was a big-ass kerfuffle that followed a publication in a British newspaper called the Daily Telegraph on October 28, 1908. The piece consisted of comments by German Kaiser Wilhelm II intended to improve German-British relations. They did not do that at all. Instead, he pissed off almost the entire world. Uh, he saw the interview as an opportunity to promote his views and ideas on Anglo-German friendship. But because he was a raving fucking idiot during the course of the interview, he ended up alienating not only the British, but the French, Russians, and Japanese. Here's a snippet of that famous interview. You English are mad, 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 mad as much hairs. What has come over you that you are so completely given over to suspicions quite unworthy of a great nation? What more can I do than I have done? I've declared with all the emphasis at my command in my speech at Guildhall that my heart is set upon peace and that it is one of my dearest wishes to live on the best terms with England. Have I ever been wrong? Falsehood and prevarication are alien to my nature. My actions ought to speak for themselves. But you listen not to them, but to those who misinterpret and distort them. That is a personal insult which I feel and resent. Oh, but guess what? This quote-unquote interview, it, it was sent to him for approval beforehand. Yeah, that was in it, and he was too lazy to go over it and say, Oh no, this is no good. Take out this and this and this. Nope. Didn't care. So, after it was published, most of the world said, Fuck that guy, he's a bag full of dicks. When Wilhelm started feeling that hostility surrounded his country on all sides, and, uh, you know, him being a war-hungry moron, he felt that a war was probably inevitable. A lesson here, folks. Because something feels inevitable, it means it hasn't happened yet. And there still may be time to undo it before it gets worse. The more you know. Following the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand in Sarajevo in 1914, Wilhelm encouraged the Austrians to adopt an uncompromising line against Serbia, effectively writing them a blank check for German support in the event of war. This move would cause a domino effect triggering allies of various countries allied to other countries to fall into conflict, and that became World War I which is considered the first modern war, a global conflict that would kill millions and millions of people. Yay! So much avoidable dying! Now, back to Annie, steadying her aim. The young Kaiser in her sights. Pre-idiotic ranting. He's in profile, lit cigar hanging out of his mouth, waiting. She cocks the hammer. The crowd holds its collective breath. Annie blinks the nervous sweat from her eyes and, and holds her breath, too. Then, she kind of wishes she hadn't drank her usual shots of whiskey before the show. Which is true, by the way. Annie Oakley would be a pinpoint shooting the fuck out of a variety of targets while surrounded by an audience of living, breathing people. And she'd be doing it with a fucking buzz on. Holy shit. 
that's inappropriately taking innocent lives into your intoxicated, possibly manslaughtering hands. Hot. Okay, back to Buzzed Annie drawing down on the Emperor of Germany. There's no backing down now, with a slight tremble in her hand. She squeezes the trigger. The Emperor's head explodes in a pink mist. A moment of stunned silence hangs in the air. The crowd looks on, mouths agape. Then a sound, an almost animalistic wail, pierces the air. It's Annie. Fuck! With the Kaiser now having a good portion of his memory, motor function, and higher education blown out the side of his head, let's talk about the effect his death has on the world as he slowly slumps to the ground. I'm uh, a pretty big biggie. Uh, no, World War I, probably, you know, without Germany. Uh, not, you know, they, they didn't follow through on World War I. It, it means Germany wasn't forced to pay an unreasonable restitution to the rest of the world for seemingly what may have been exaggerated, falsely contrived claims motivated by retribution without the overt aggression. Yay for Germany. But also for the rest of the world. Why? Because those restitutions would cause a lot of national resentment and bitterness that would in fact fester over the years after World War I. A pissed off at the world hostility and poverty that a young Adolf Hitler would use to argue his way into power in Germany. Why is the world shitting on us with this bullshit bullying restitution shit? Because of, obviously, the secret cabal of Jews running the money-slash-foreign-government-slash-other-insane-not-remotely-true-nonsense. Oh, um, sorry. If you're not familiar with Hitler, uh, you must have been in a coma for almost 100 years and are also the recipient of a, some secret eternal life serum. With a, What a winning hand you've been dealt! You're just in time for the rising oceans, burning forests, and frequently killer storms. Congratulations! Just a recap for you. We uh, have psychotic racists who like to murder millions of innocent people, of which Hitler was but one of those that did that. For those familiar with all the shitty things Hitler did to the world, you know that unfortunately, Annie didn't miss that day. She popped the end of that cigar cleanly and breathed a sigh of relief at not killing a world leader in front of hundreds of other people. Instead, they applauded. It wasn't until years later that Annie would really understand that the uh, episode wasn't a nail-biting brush with infamy, but instead was a lost opportunity. After World War I had kicked off and uh, Annie had tried to get into the army and the army said no, she wrote Kaiser Wilhelm, Kaiser Wilhelm II a letter asking for another shot, which is both badass and a great footnote to an otherwise amazing life story. Man, if only she had been a shitty shot that day. Which goes to show that sometimes being more drunk is a good thing. Fucking high alcohol tolerance couldn't give us one intoxicated headshot. <sighs> what a strange world we live in. But it's easy to take it for granted. Like believing that the things we learn about in history were destined in some way. Alexander the Great conquered the known world and united it. Is uh, It's taught like it's a foregone conclusion. Of course he did that. It was almost the only way it could have turned out. Seems like the, uh, the unspoken idea that we've been taught in history is like that. Yet, with books like this, 
it goes to show how radically different everything you've ever known could have been. Hell, our ancestors might never have happened. What an absolute mindfuck. Overall, though, if there's anything you should take away from the events described, uh, you know, and their alternatives, it's probably that alcohol and violence made the world a better place. Uh, don't quote me on that. Thank you for listening to Elton Reads a Book a Week. If you've gotten this far, I thank you. Please share this episode with as many people as possible because hell, you know, why not? If you want to contribute directly to its creation, you can do so at the Patreon page in the description that I linked to below or wherever you see the description at. Or you can contribute through the anchor.fm page. I also can take tips on the podcast Twitter handle, which is fucking weird. But anyway, that is at Elton Reads a lot. And I, I don't know how that works, but if you're interested, hit me up on there and we'll figure it out together. And while I have you here, do me a favor. Read a book this week. Don't let them die out. Okay? Huh? Huh? All right. Thanks again. Bye-bye.